Hey, so this morning we are in part three of our series titled Tasteless, which is itself part two of three in a journey through the entire story of Scripture. And the reason we're doing a series like this is because a lot of people know some of the stories in the Scripture, but a lot of people do not know the story of the Scripture. And a lot of people know just enough stories that they feel justified to dismiss the whole thing and their belief to just dismiss the whole thing. And we want to change that by understanding the entire story of Scripture. We want to change people's mentality and your mentality and how you represent uh, the story of Scripture as a whole. But this morning we're going to do things a little different in that we're going to look at one important theme in Scripture and we're going to follow it all the way through and even beyond into, into history a little bit um, throughout the story of Scripture. And that theme that we're going to look at is the temple, the dwelling place of God. In Genesis 1, God's intention in creation is that he is organizing his dwelling place. That's really what Genesis 1 is about. He is creating a space where he can live, where he can dwell amidst his people. And so the garden is God's temple. And his goal, as we've stated many times throughout the series, is that his presence and his dwelling may reach the furthest corners of all of the earth. God's presence would be known everywhere, and so humanity is made in God's image to co-rule and to co-labor with him. We have a responsibility to, to bring God's presence and God's rule to the furthest corners of the earth. But humanity didn't want to participate in that vocation. We didn't want God's kingdom to rule on earth because we were too concerned with our own individual kingdom's so we re- rebelled against God, and we rejected God, and what he had called us to do is humanity made in his image. We left the garden to develop the world our own way, and isn't it true that every time we rebel and reject God and walk away from God that we hurt, and every time we do that, we end up hurting others? And I think that's so true, and it certainly happened that the world began to fall in disarray, and the world began to decay, and the world was not as God had intended it to be. Pain and power struggle and violence and corruption, these are now the norm because love for God and love for others has been abandoned as our vocation. But here's the thing that's so ironic, I think, about every single person who walks up on the face of the planet. Everybody is trying to get back to God. I I really do believe this. Everybody is trying to get back to God. Everyone is trying to fix the problem that we all know we have. So I haven't said this in a few weeks, and so I don't want you to forget. I want to remind you, everybody is religious. Everyone is trying to fix a problem by doing something. That is the very nature of religion. I do something to fix the problem I know that I have. That is religion. Now, most people try to cover up their shame, you know, or they, or they run away from their guilt, or they drink down their despair, or they numb their pain through needles or pills, or they lie their way out of a problem, or they just straight up blame shift. You know, they'll just throw the blame on somebody else. It's not my fault, it's their fault. They'll just throw the blame on somebody else. That is how most people participate in religion. Everybody is religious, except those who follow Jesus. Now, this is a really bold statement I'm about to make, but it's absolutely true. Everybody is religious, except those who follow Jesus, because Jesus' followers are literally the only ones on the face of the planet who do not try to fix the problem ourselves. We're not trying to fix the problem because Jesus has already fixed the problem for us. We are the only ones who rely on God's work on our behalf to cure the problem that we are all trying to find. See, we're not responsible to heal ourselves because Jesus has healed us and he has invited us into relationship with the Father. So back to the story. Humanity is not in communion with God and God is not in their midst. 
Every now and then, now God would interject in the story. He'd approach an individual and he'd say, through you, I'm going to do good for all of the world. He does this over and over and over and again. He says it to Abraham. He says it to Moses. He says it to the people of Israel. Through you, through one person, I'm going to do good for the many. I'm going to do good for all of the world. Through you, I will bless the world. Through you and your offspring, I will bring light into the darkness. And so he calls this people up, the Israelites, this offspring. He calls them up out of slavery to illustrate his redemptive power and to establish his presence among them. The God of Israel comes to their rescue. Now notice how crazy this must have felt to the Israelites and seemed to the Israelites who only ever knew the gods of Egypt. The gods who were capricious and angry and, uh, and manipulative. The gods who were only self-serving. The gods who thought humanity was, a, was an annoyance. I mean, humanity was an afterthought, right? The gods were not concerned for humans and our well-being. And yet here is a God who is concerned for the Israelites. Here is a God who loves the Israelites and wants to rescue them up out of slavery. This is completely unheard of. It would have totally blown the minds of the Israelites. But here is a God who doesn't enslave humans like all the other gods they knew does. No, he sets them free. This is a God who's guided by compassion and he's guided by empathy because this God is love. And because he wants the best for his people, he sets up camp within their midst. I mean, literally, God sets up camp within their midst. He takes them camping as he tells them to build a tent. And what's important to know about this is that God did not ask his people to build him a temple. The, the, the tent is actually a, an important part of this because it proves that God is a mobile God. It's, he's a God for all of the world. He doesn't want to be a regional God confined to one space inside one box in one brick-and-mortar building. He builds a tent that is mobile and can move. He is a God for all of the world. And he wanted to maintain his mobility with this tent. Several hundred years have passed, and David is king of Israel. And he's resting from war. And he looks around his palace that he's built out of cedar, and it's a lovely palace. And he says, you know what, why am I sitting here in this beautiful palace of, sil- of cedar when my God is sitting in a box, in a tent? And he's concerned, and so he has it in mind to build his God a house. But God tells him this, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house out of cedar? I mean, God didn't need a house because the structure was a means to an end. God didn't need a man-made house because he had other plans in mind. Nonetheless, David put into action everything that his son Solomon would need in order to make it happen. So Solomon builds it. But before God sets up shop in this temple, he gives Solomon and the people of Israel the before I hand you the keys to the car talk. You guys ever had that talk before? Maybe um, with your children, if you have children who are old enough to drive, or, or maybe you received that talk from your parents. I remember when, my, uh, when I turned 16, um, not 16, when I was moving off to college and my parents gave me a car, they gave me the keys to a sweet 87 LeBaron. And uh, they were like, Ross, this, this car is amazing. Like, you're going to get girls with this car. I, I took Emily on our first date in this car. Like, it worked, right? I mean, uh, they were like, Ross, you need to treat this car with respect and dignity. And I'm telling you, Ross, if you abuse the privilege of having this car, we will sell it. We will take it away. I'm like, whoa, okay, they must be serious, right? And that's essentially what God does to Solomon. 
God tells Solomon, this is a beautiful house you've built for me. I, I accept it as the gift and I'll move in immediately, but I got to warn you that if you misbehave out there and you think that because I'm confined to this little box that you can do whatever you want out there, I will tear this thing apart. I don't need this building to accomplish my plans, God is saying. It's a means to an end. So if you abandon me to worship other gods, this place will stay vacant as a testimony to my absence in the land. Here's what he says. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? Why? Because God did not need a house. It was a means. It was a temporary means to a more holistic end. You see, God's end game was never to reside within a box. That was not his plan. It was to dwell amidst a people. The whole earth was to be his home. But his people built him a box, which was a very similar to all the other boxes that all the other nations built for all the other gods. Except one big difference. You see, the God vault, which we know better as the Holy of Holies, was in stark contrast to all the other temples in their day because it didn't house an idol. It didn't have a representative figure. And a religion and a temple without an image was absurd to any other religion of their day. Every religion looked at the Jewish people and just laughed because their God did not have a representative figure. I mean, what are you worshiping if you don't have a representative figure, they'd say. What's the point of having a building if it doesn't house a representative? What's the point of this whole thing? But in some way, that, was, that difference was also the point of it all, right? Israel worshipped a living God. They didn't worship a trinket idol. They didn't have a little idol on a stand that they worshipped, that they had to chisel a lot of stone or cut down a tree and, you know, ch chisel a lot of a log. They worshipped a living God, a spirit God. They didn't have to cart this idol that they made with their own hands and hoist it up on a pedestal within their temple. They didn't have to cart that God out during festivals, and they didn't have to lock up the temple at night for fear that it might be stolen or that thieves would come in and chip off an ear or a, or a nose of this, of this trinket idol for good luck. Now, the Israelites worshipped a living, breathing spirit God. See, God wasn't put in his temple. God inhabited and filled his temple. Here's what we learn. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. You see, the problem was that once Solomon built a permanent house, he reduced God to the level of all the other gods of all the other nations. He domesticated God. He regionalized God. He, he took the, the mobile for all of the world God, and he chained him to a temple. And when they did that, the Israelites began to forget their vocation. And they forgot what God had called them to. And they forgot what they had been set free from in the first place. That through this nation, all of the world would receive its blessing. You see, Israel forgot their vocation. And they began to worship other gods. Because they made their God just like all of the other gods of all the other nations. And so true to his word, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes. And he desecrates the temple of the living God. Stone by stone is cast down. The only thing that is left is the foundation of the temple. 
But fortunately, God wasn't home at the time. He had left years prior to this. But remember that God's intent on blessing the world, right? Bringing light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar, yes, he destroyed the temple and he carts off the survivors to Babylon. And the mobile God of the Jews goes with them because he's not chained to a region. The mobile God of the Jews who wants to fill all of the world with his goodness and his presence goes with the Jewish people to Babylon. If you want to learn more about this, read the book of Daniel. It'll tell you what God did while the people were in Babylon. Eventually, Babylon falls to the Persians, and Emperor Cyrus sends the Jewish people back home to rebuild their temple. But this temple that they build is nothing like the original. It pales in comparison. It just, it's not to the scope. And people literally, we are told, weep, not in celebration, but they weep in sadness because this thing is just pathetic before them. As they build this temple, they just weep. It's nothing like the original. And so God reminds them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Uh, How does it look to you now? Uh, Does it seem like nothing to you? And the people were like, yes, of course it seems like nothing. This thing is pathetic. It's nothing like the original. Well, God says, be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, right? My presence is what is important here. I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when I came up out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations. It's that nation language again. God is for all of the world. I will shake all of the nations. And what, I des- what is desired by all nations will come. And this house then will be filled with glory. See, God didn't occupy the temple, but he also hadn't abandoned his people. He hadn't ab- abandoned his promise. He hadn't abandoned his vocation for his people. Through them, all of the world still would be blessed as they enter back into relationship with him. And so for the next 400 years of the Jewish story, God is silent, but he isn't still. And my friends, so many of you who are in hard circumstances, and so many of you who are just reeling in the pain of what is going on and the the questioning and the doubting of what is going on, you cry out to God, but he seems silent. You need to know that God may be silent, but God is not still. He is working for your good to retrieve your blessing. For the next 400 years, God was silent, but he was not still. He was preparing the world for its blessing. He was, getting to ready to, he was getting ready to occupy and inhabit humanity. Not just a box that the people wanted to confine him to. He wanted to occupy all of the world. So in 19 BC, King Herod begins a renovation project to bring that dinky little temple that was built as they returned from exile and to reestablish its beauty and its majesty and its glory, he was going to rebuild it. And in 64 AD, it was finally completed. And it's really unfortunate that it took so long for a detail that I will mention in just a minute. The temple was a 37-acre complex in Jesus' day. It took up 25% of the entire city of Jerusalem, and it was literally at the very center of every aspect of Jewish life. The temple was what it was all about. Everything revolved around the temple. And then in the midst of this religious industry and this religious system stemming from this new temple, a carpenter turned rabbi steps on to the scenes of history and says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
And of course, the priests in Jesus' day said, what do you mean something greater? There is nothing greater than the temple. The temple is the greatest. It is the very manifest presence of God within our midst. The temple is the very center of our life. It is where everything stems from. There is nothing greater than the temple. And for someone to claim to be greater than the temple as Jesus later did, and for someone to claim that the temple was a corrupt system as Jesus later did, I mean, these were words that were worthy of death. This is blasphemy, they would say. And of course, as we know the story, that's exactly where it ended Jesus. Jesus wouldn't back down from the idea that through him, God was doing something for all of the world, not just the people around this particular box. God was interested in doing something for all of the world. But the people in power, they would just have nothing to do with it. Because anybody who spoke against the religious system and the religious industry of their day would not be listened to because it certainly was a religious industry. You see, the religious elite during Jesus' day had created sophisticated systems of loopholes that enabled them to avoid the most inconvenient portions of the law. Anything about the law that told them that they needed to give for the benefit of the poor, that would you know, cut, it, cut against their own wealth, they, they found loopholes through all those things. They didn't need to love those people. They didn't need to act on their behalf. The priests lived like kings while the rest of the world, man, suffered under their essentially their oppression. The rest of the world starved as the kings, of the, the, the priests who lived like kings, ate at luxury table, luxurious tables. The priests practiced unjust, inflated money exchanges, and they hollowed out scales so that the people who were coming to exchange their money and buying goods would, would not get what they were actually paying for, and they sold second-rate blind, deaf, and mute animals to the masses. I mean, they cut corners all over the place. They didn't care about the presence of God. They didn't care about the worship of God. They didn't care about the temple and what it represented. They cared about manipulating the people so that their pocketbooks would get bigger. And Jesus saw through it all, and he foresaw its destruction. Regarding the temple, he says, Truly I tell you that not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. But nobody believed him. I mean, each of these stones weighed 500 tons. There is no way that this could ever be destroyed. But about 40 years after Jesus said this, in 70 AD, just six years after the temple was finished, Jewish rebels who were sick and tired of Roman taxation and the general oppression of the Romans in general, they, they raised up an army and they went to war against the Romans. And for four years they fought until General Vespasian of Rome surrounded Jerusalem and enclosed all of the Jewish people within its walls. And once the Romans broke through, they were so pent up with rage that they mercilessly slaughtered thousands, if not tens of thousands of Jews and they carted off into slavery all the rest. And once the temple was set ablaze and all the priests were killed, the Romans tore the temple apart stone by stone and threw it down into the valley below. You can still see many of those stones are still there today. But God hadn't occupied that temple for nearly a thousand years by this point. He wasn't interested in occupying a box, right? He wanted to inhabit a people who would continue his vocation of blessing the world and bringing the light into the darkness. And so Jesus is ultimately that blessing and that light into the darkness. And over and over and over again, we are told that those who love him and follow him and commit themselves to him and trust in what he has accomplished for them, uh, for them that what is true now of Jesus has been passed on to those who follow Jesus because he has given us of himself, we are told. We are indwelled with the Spirit to live and to move and to breathe. 
and to have our very being anchored in the very person of God and the person of Jesus. And then he passes on his vocation to us. Jesus is the light of the world, but he gives that vocation now to his people who embody himself. He says this, this is his very final prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. It's not for us alone, right? The people who know Jesus. I pray also for those, for the world, who will believe in me through their message. So our Christian faith is not just for us, right? The people who come to boxes like this on Sunday mornings, our faith is not just for us. We have our faith for the benefit of the world. That is why we follow Jesus, so that the world might know who Jesus is. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there is this entangled web of being, right? Us indwelling God and God indwelling us. That is what God has in mind, so that the world ar- around us might believe. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, and I in them and you and me. There's that indwelling of God thing again. So that the world may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. I mean, God is compelling our unity. God is filling us with himself, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. God has given the vocation of Israel, the vocation of Jesus now to us. He wants to do good for us so that through us, he can do good for all of the world. We, in other words, both the corporate body and the church and the individual are the temple of the living God. We are his dwelling place. I mean, God, uh, Paul, Paul said this explicitly to the Corinthians when he said, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And my friends, if that is true, I mean, think about this for a minute. If that is true, if we are the temple of the living God, if we are the house of the living God, if God dwells within us, then the God who heals the sick and frees the slaves and raises the dead has taken up a residence in us. I mean, what does that mean for each of us? The God who is himself peace lives in us. The God who is himself love lives in us. Think of the implications of this. I mean, God's peace and his patience and his compassion and his grace and his self-control and his joy and his kindness and his love, his power, these are not far away and unattainable. They're not off in the distance somewhere. They are within us. Do you understand the power that you have as a follower of Jesus? Do you understand that the God who raises the dead is now living in you? I mean, what does that mean for us? And so please know that this isn't a matter of feeling. It's like, oh, that's really nice, Ross, and that's good and all, but like, I just don't feel it. Guys, this isn't about feelings. Feelings are subjective. This is about an objective truth. This is true of you. If you are a follower of Jesus, God lives in you. It is a matter of fact, so claim it and believe it because it is true. God lives in you. Have you ever really stopped to think about the implications of all this? I mean, let me, let me illustrate it for just a moment. I didn't come up with this illustration, um, so I'm not going to claim ownership of it, but Consider this jar of ping pong balls. We are human, and these represent our rage and our addictions and our fear and our guilt and our shame and our anger and everything else that comes along with being humans on this planet, our selfishness, certainly. The way that we hurt each other, the way that other people have hurt us is all enveloped in these ping pong balls. And we come to Jesus, right? 
we take the living water represented here and and we take some of it and we're like, you know what? Oh man, I I'm taking this and I, I just I thought I thought I was gonna get power. I, I thought I was I thought things were gonna change. You know, I, I tasted it and I thought I would get some peace. And I thought I'd be healed and I, and I thought I would be victorious and I thought all the things that are true of Jesus would be true of me. And yes, you know what? Every single Sunday at church I break down sobbing because I feel like I'm in the presence of God. And, and when I'm in my prayer times at home and in my devotional times, it's like they're, they're so very meaningful. Like I get that. But, but throughout the week, man, it's just hard. Like nothing seems to be changing. But, but here's just an important truth. You know, Jesus didn't ask for us to take up our cross one time for one day. No, no, he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. I mean, isn't it true that anything worth starting is worth continuing? I mean, if you're going to put the effort to start something, put the effort in to continue it. And so get in your word and cry out to God and, and surrender more and continue to pursue him. And give of himself for you. And you're going to find that, wow, man, things are, things are starting to change. You know, like, wow, this is, man, my life, all these, all these old habits are starting to, starting to do away. But, man, isn't it true that, like, one, start thing, one things start to change, isn't it easy just to, like, you know what? I think I'm pretty good now. I've kind of reached that place, you know, like, man, things are starting to change for me, and I think I'm all right. And things are a little better than they used to be. What happens, though, is that so often or not, we get complacent. We kind of look at our life, and you're like, you know, man, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need to continue to push in. I don't need to continue to surrender. Man, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need to continue to give more of myself away. We get complacent, and we forget that God is actually the source of all this blessing. What we end up with is just mixed identity. It's a, it's a mask, and so, you know, like, yeah, you know, like, I got a lot of Jesus in me, but here's still all the world. And so, like, yeah, you know, I can post on social media whatever I want. I don't care who I offend. I don't care what it makes the world think of me and uh, how it makes me look. Yeah, you know, it's my birthday, and so I can go get blitzed. It's my birthday. It's just what I do, you know. It's one time a year, whatever. I can go live the life I want to live. And yeah, I can curse, and I can run my mouth, and I can live however I want to live. It doesn't matter. And yeah, you know, when I'm stressed, I drink, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, that's, that's my solution to it all. And we have this mixed identity. We don't know who we are, and there's no power, and there's no victory in this. And too many of us, I think, are staying in this. I think, too many, I think this resembles too many followers of Jesus in America today and throughout the world probably, but I think it's very true that a lot of us just have this mixed identity. Yeah, you know, I came to Jesus. I said the prayer. I got baptized. I go to church. I do my things, but really, you know, yeah, there's so much of the world still in me. It doesn't really matter. I got my salvation. That's really what I came for anyway. See, that's the problem, isn't it? Too many people just want enough of God to make us feel better about ourselves. I got really what I came for. I got the comfort. I got the community. I got just enough of God to make me feel better about myself. Just enough of God to get salvation. But, but when God starts impinging on my creature comforts, when like, you know, like I, I, can't, I, can't no, I can no longer just post whatever I want on social media, like I actually have to, have to put a filter on my brain and on my mouth, like come on, 
Like, God, you're starting to get a little too close. You're starting to ask a little too much of me. Yeah, you know, when it's my birthday and I can't just do whatever I want and, and drink whatever I want and sleep with whoever I want and I can't just live the life however I want to do, like, God, you're, just get, you're, getting, you're asking a little too much of me. Yeah, when I'm stressed and I can't just go to the bar and drink it all away, yeah, God, you're asking just a little too much of me. We have this mixed identity and it's powerless and it's victoryless and there is no strength in this life. And so we say, stop that train. You know, come on, God, quit it. Like, you know what? I don't want to give you any more. But at the same time, God is good, right? Like, come on, there's a lot of God in here. God is good. You know, like, I still go to church sometimes. Still saying my prayers. God is good. He forgives me. But, but for some reason, I thought it would be better. I thought it was going to change. And from afar, my friends in the back row, like, what can you even see in here? Can you even see that, that there's any God in this life? I mean, look at the world, man. The world looks at us who are living this, this kind of like mixed, no identity, hypocrisy life, and the world only sees the brightly colored, flashy balls. Like, that's all it sees. It sees our inconsistencies. It sees our failures. It sees the lack of power that we present to the world. And God says, don't you know don't you remember? Like, everybody is trying to get back to me. Everybody is trying to do that, right? Everything you do is an attempt at finding life. Everything you do is an attempt at escaping the enslavement of sin. You're just trying to fix it all by yourself. My friends, everybody's religious. But I, God would say, am the God who sets you free. And so I treat you with compassion and empathy. And so what, man? Just, just keep pursuing me and keep chasing after me and keep surrendering more and more of yourself to me and I will come through and I will be trustworthy and I will be honest to bring about your salvation and I will bring about your healing because I am the God who fills you all. And what's so great about this now is that when we go then to the world and we're like, man, you know what? The world is telling me once again that I'm not enough. And the world is telling me once again that I'm just a failure. And the world is telling me once again that there's nothing good that I can offer. Like, man, these cannot stick. There is nothing that these can do to us that will change our identity in Christ when our identity is in Christ. And my friends, this is where the power comes. It's so backwards and it's so upside down from what the world tells us, but your power comes in surrender, not in trying harder. It's when you give more of yourself to the indwelling of God's spirit and you say, God, I can't do this anymore on myself. I have tried and tried and tried, and God, I'm going to give more of myself away to be open to who you want me to be and how you want to fill me. You see, God wants to fill every single nook and cranny of your life and empower you with his very spirit. I'm going to invite the band forward, or Kate forward, and we're going to sing one final song as we conclude our service together. You see, I think we're climbing out of a generation of Christian teachers that preached fire and brimstone over the masses. And so what a lot of Christians wanted as they came to Jesus was salvation. That's really all they wanted. They didn't want the indwelling of God's spirit. This was something that wasn't even talked about. This wasn't offered anybody. They just wanted salvation. They didn't want to burn in hell for all eternity. And so they said, sure, I'll become a Christian. I have to say this prayer. Sure, I can do that. 
And what we end up with is a powerless, victoryless Christianity that presented to the masses a faith that was so unappealing. So unappealing. When God wants to live and move and breathe within every single one of us so that we have a power and a strength to do something incredible, to be his representatives to the world of his redemption and his healing. And so what a lot of people ended up with was neither their salvation nor the indwelling of God's spirit. And so as they got older, they said, you know what, this whole Christian thing is pointless. And so what do they do? They walk away from it. And they leave with a bitter taste in their mouth towards the church and towards God. For so many people, the church had just become a hollow religious industry. But God wants you as his temple. He wants to fill every nook and cranny of you with his being and his power and his peace and his love. And so my constant prayer over myself, and it needs to be only over myself, I cannot pray this over you. It will have no effect and there will be no point of me praying this over you. This is something that you have to choose to pray for yourself. I surrender. More of myself I surrender that there would be more of Jesus filling me and less of myself to get in the way. And my friends, when that is your constant, constant, constant prayer, you know what's going to happen? God will fill you with with his very self. As you surrender more and more of your life to him, he will fill you more and more with himself and his power and his peace and his love will fill you to overflowing. And I just pray that we might be a people who are so full of God's spirit that it would empower our love. Now, if you read the New Testament, do you know, do you know what the Holy Spirit does to people? Do you know the, the thing that, that Paul is so eager to inform us of what the Holy Spirit does in humans? It empowers our love. And I pray that we just might be such a generous, loving community because we are filled with God's spirit to do just that in us. If you do not know God this morning, if you do not know the power of his Holy Spirit, if you are not known because you are far from God and you need to come back into relationship with him, my friends, let's talk. Do not walk away from this place not knowing the gift of God, of salvation in Jesus Christ this morning and the power and the strength and the victory that can be yours when you trust fully in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you that today is a gift of your grace and that you've given it to us again, Father. And now we have this opportunity to come before you and to take communion this morning as a body, to come and remember, not only remember what you have done as we take the bread, which is symbolic of your body, and the the cup, which is symbolic of your blood, not only to remember what you have done for us, but to participate in what you are now doing. And so, Father, I pray that the symbol of us taking these elements and taking them into our bodies would be symbolic of what you are doing with your Holy Spirit in us, Father. That as we take this bread and this cup, Father, we would be reminded that we have a vocation to represent you to the world, to share with the world how you have redeemed us. By your power, by your victory, Father, may the world come to recognize your light and to know your abundant life. Such a big task, Father. We cannot do it alone. And so we surrender more and more of ourselves, Father. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of me, Father. That must be our prayer.
and I thank you for it in advance. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.